0: You're listening to an LA Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com/podcast. Retrieved by Deneau. power play winding down. Up top Spence across to Kelly again. shot! He scores! Might have been tipped in front. 55 was there. Quinton Byfield. Just
1: You're listening to all the Kings men the official podcast of the L.A. Kings.
0: Lead pass onside, LaFerriere, shoots, stars. There's his first NHL goal! Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is all the Kings men. We are finally back on schedule. I don't have COVID anymore, no more family engagements, just L.A. Kings hockey 24-7, 365. The Kings may have had four days off, but the content department never rests, We've got some player interviews coming up in future episodes. We're looking into some more behind the scenes interviews. And today, one of my personal favorites, Ed Egros. And another reminder if you like listening to Kings Talk, the LA Kings post game radio show, we're posting the replays on the LA Kings Insider audio feed. You can find all of that at lakings.com slash podcast. Subscribe to it along with all the Kings men and the rain check. Get all your Kings info as soon as it's available. And we're going to try something new here. If you have a question you'd like me to ask one of the players in the locker room after a practice, you can go ahead and send that in to kingsmenpodcast at gmail.com. Quick disclaimer, if you're going to be a troll or ask a question that's totally inappropriate or you know I won't ask, I reserve the right to ignore you. But if you want to know what Trevor Moore's favorite song is or what freeway Mikey Anderson likes to avoid the most or what brand and flavor of yogurt Adrian Kempe prefers, send him in and I'll try and ask them. All right, let's talk some fancy stats. Joining me today, familiar face, Edward Egross, Bally Sports contributor, sports analytics guru, my own personal sports analytics guru and host of BetQL Daily. Ed, how have you been? I'm doing well, doing really well. Uh Kings off to a fantastic start. So uh the the vibes around town are fantastic. <laughs> the vibes are high. No question. Um you know, it's always an interesting process for me of of deciding when to bring you on because analytics are they're a funny thing in that you know they're all there are now more quote unquote analytics than ever, mm-hmm. and yet most of them I find just provide people like me with words to fill empty space with. So even though I don't particularly love the expected goals metric, when I'm hosting. Kings talk, the post game show for the LA Kings, I find myself looking at natural statric and money puck and saying things like, well, Carl Grunstrom led the team and expected goals. So, you know, he had a good game. I don't believe that. It's just a way for me to burn 30 seconds off the clock when I have whatever, 45 minutes of time to fill. And I'm <laughs> not sure that I'm going to be able to fill it. So Whenever I reach out to stats people, I always want to have, you know, a reason for it. Uh, you know, I want to, I want the conversation to be productive. So I want to get two things out of the way before we start diving into our conversations. One, if you could refresh everybody on your background and how you came to be a sports analytics guru. Sure thing. So when it comes to my
1: career, I suppose, I really started in broadcasting. That was primarily what I wanted to do. And I was a local sports reporter bouncing around different markets, basically what any young up-and-coming broadcaster, I suppose, would be doing. And ultimately, as I was bouncing around from shop to shop, one of the things that I noticed was... Okay, I do have like a quantitative background. I double majored. Uh, second major was in statistical economics.
0: That's what I want to dive, dive into. Yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, that that little thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, this was also the time when Moneyball by Michael Lewis came out. Read the book. I had a professor who brought it up in class, and so I was starting to see this marriage between analytics and sports kind of come together. And I was finding my outlets, and certainly baseball was a lot easier to talk about this kind of stuff in, but I knew it was also translatable to other sports once data became much more prevalent and robust. And so while I was in Dallas uh, working at the Fox affiliate out there, I got a master's in predictive analytics, started to incorporate those tools, and the education really was important for me just as far as uh, getting a voice and putting a language behind all of these numbers, which I felt like a lot of people weren't really doing at the time. Now it's prevalent. Now you see it everywhere and that's fantastic. Uh, But I also uh, am very grateful to have the opportunity just to have the educational uh, chances to see how it's supposed to go and see what's behind the curtain as far as how to put together these formulas and models and all that good stuff. So then from there, uh, left Fox and uh, sort of became a sports betting expert and, and did that for a little bit and was at the NFL for a little bit. Then Bally Sports West reached out as far as uh, doing some analytical segments. Those have been just phenomenal to do. And uh, most recently, back in April, I joined uh, Odyssey and started, uh, or started working at BetQL Daily as the host there, where we get into sports betting primarily, but I'm also able to talk analytics and how to use those models in terms of placing bets.
0: So the reason I wanted to have you run down your bona fides uh, like that is because one of my favorite expressions is a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And like I said, I find myself falling prey to it. I see tons of people doing it all the time. I am fond of saying, and no disrespect to any of my colleagues out there who participate in this, these corners of the industry, but I'm fond of saying that, that there's two great grifts in sports writing right now. One is prospect writing and one is analytics writing. Because prospect writing, you can say whatever you want. You're always going to find an audience who's willing to be positive about the future and potential, and no one is ever going to go back and challenge you on anything you said. So, and we live in a world where drafts exist. So every year, mm-hmm. there's 270 something new athletes coming into all four leagues, and you can just spend your days creating, you know, draft prospect lists and rankings, and you know, and whatever. And like I said, no one will ever ever go back and challenge <laughs> challenge you if you were wrong um and then analytics i don't think people understand w- w- enough to be able to challenge those writers who make it their their you know their bread and butter so if you have a guy like dom from the athletic and i don't mean to pick on dom but But you mean to pick on Dom? Well, he doesn't like the Kings. It's uh, Kings fans know it. I know it. He knows it. I'm sure he would deny it, and I don't know it. I'm being tongue-in-cheek. But it's fun to pretend that Dom doesn't like the Kings. So when Dom writes these big articles and he has his uh, uh, contract value things, whatever, and he talks about his model, I don't know how his model works. I have no idea how his model works. I don't know what it means to even say that a model works. I vaguely understand that, you know a good predictive model might hit at 60% accuracy rate. Whereas if you poll a bunch of sports writers and ask their predictions, you might hit at 55% accuracy rate. And I can understand that 60 is better than 55. That's about the limit of my understanding. So I like to talk to people who are smarter than me about these things. Um, And that's where you come in. Um, The second thing I wanted to get out of the way, sorry for that long rambling intro that Second thing good. I wanted you to hammer home for me is the importance of sample size. Because that is one thing that I do understand. And I do think it's important to keep hammering it over and over and over again. So if you could, just give me your your hottest take on sample size. So when it comes to sample size,
1: I think if you ask sports experts across you know any league, fan base, whatever... I think everybody would agree that sample size is something where it needs to be large enough. And certainly there are statistical approaches to figuring out how large the sample size should be for whatever you're looking at. Whether you're looking at shifts, whether you're looking at actual games or shots or whatever. Whatever the thing is you're measuring, certainly sample size matters a great deal. And I think in a vacuum, we believe this. And then we throw away that idea very quickly whenever we want to parse down something that makes this sample different than another sample versus this one game or this one week or whatever it is. And so to me, I sort of look at that difference between, say, the theoretical and the practical where I go, hey, theoretically, I think just about to a man, everybody says, yeah, sample size matters. You don't want it to be too small. But then when you break it down, you go, all right, well, this is different because of X. That is different because of Y. And those differences overwhelm anything else to where we have to look at these exact same conditions and say, you know what? That matters more than all of these other performances, all these other games and shots and shifts and whatever you're looking at. And my reaction to that is always, okay, If you have some sort of empirical study of any kind, and most people aren't doing this because, again, we're sports fans and writers and we have all these things that we don't have time to do or we don't have the knowledge to do, whatever it is. But my thing is always, okay, if you want to abandon sample size, what is your rationale for it? And have you proven that this particular context is so unusual that it cannot be replicated any other way. And it is far more important than, say, something that offers a depth and breadth that perhaps offers lots of different contexts and lots of different situations. So if you're talking about, say, line combinations, and we see this one line combination and it's minimal, well, okay, it's a small sample size, but you might go, well, because of their bond or chemistry or whatever, that more than overwhelms anything else. And my response to that is always, well, you need to be careful, because if you can prove that this is overwhelmingly more important, okay, fine, I'm open to that. But more often than not, you can't. And I think it's more important to kind of fall back on some of the tried and true things that I think we largely agree upon, and that is this idea that a sample size of whatever you're looking at does need to be large enough to be useful to make any kind of conclusions as far as what the future is supposed to look like.
0: So diving deeper on that subject, let's just take uh, lines versus games played. So yeah. <clears throat> we're 14 games in, which is a small sample size. But then if we're going to look at things like Corsi or expected goals, which my instinct is not to, because I am of the opinion that 14 games is too small a sample size. And I'm only of that opinion because I've been told that opinion by people who who I trust. I, I don't right. know personally, but let's just say we were going to do it. Kempe Kopitar and Byfield have played 149 minutes in those 14 games, and Louis Lazat and Grundstrom have played 98 minutes. So we're already looking at an actual, even though we're looking at 14 games, quote unquote, mm-hmm. if we're breaking it into minutes played, now we're looking at one line that has 66% less ice time than the other one. So we're all, now we're even talking about different chunks of uh, sample size. So all of this is just prelude to this dumb question which is 14 games into a season is it even worth having the conversation we're about to have obviously yes for entertainment purposes but <laughs> right. from, from a mathematics <laughs> this is thing. one heck of a podcast that's <laughs> <Yeah>. the idea <laughs> but, but is anything we're about to say even worth anything i guess is what i'm getting at i think so a- absolutely it is and i it's it's funny you you bring
1: this up because one of the notes that i had it, just in terms of you know looking at this season so far is you look at some of the defensive metrics for the Kings, they're phenomenal right now. I mean, they're they're absolute gangbusters. If you're looking at expected goals allowed, shots allowed, inner slot shots allowed, all of that stuff, the the Kings have been unbelievable. And so I look at this 14 game sample size, and like you, I would go, okay, that is kind of small. It's probably a little smaller than anything I would like to conclude. So then the fallback is, okay, well, let's offer up some context. And the best context I think we can give is, who have you played? Who are these offenses that the Kings have played? And does that give us enough for us to feel comfortable about these defensive numbers to say, hey, actually, you know what? Uh, Among all league defenses, this is, if not the best, second, third, something like that. And the schedule's not been easy. No, there have, been, there have been a lot of good offensive attacks that the Kings have had to stymie uh, with some more successful than others, but I think that matters here. I think the combination of a slightly smaller sample that you would like to have, but then putting it into context going, well, you add strength of schedule. Strength of schedule is one of those things in the NHL where I think when you have a small sample size, it matters a lot, but then you look at, the remaining 68 games for the Kings, I'd say it doesn't matter very much. And it's funny when I looked up Tankathon as far as uh, remaining strength of schedule, the Kings have the easiest slate for the remaining 68. And that's great, but how much easier is that compared with, say, the hardest strength of schedule when the sample size becomes enormous? So it's one of those things where The context for defensive numbers, it's fantastic. Strength of schedule going forward is really good. But these margins are rather small to where cautious optimism might be the best approach, might be the best phrase to use.
0: So one of the reasons that I'm most um, presently obsessed with sample size is the home record, which has become a topic of conversations. One, three and three. Mm -hmm. However, that's. There's a conversation to be had where you're talking about a seven-game span, but for my money, it's one game. It's the Philadelphia game because excuse me, the first game, people who have heard me say this probably four or five times now, I apologize for everybody about to listen to it again. First game of the season, the Kings didn't have a full roster. They had 19 skaters because Victor Arvidsson was not yet placed on LTR. Calia was suspended. Second game, Calia was suspended. They did put arvidson on ltir but they were you know mixing and matching lines they didn't know they were because calia was still suspended two of the first six games were back-to-back situations where they played on the road first then at home on the second night two of the games i believe went to shootout and they lost the shootout shootouts a coin toss those easily could have been wins now instead of one three and three we're looking at three one and three or no Mm -hmm. three Three, 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 and, three and one. one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but three, three. I knew and one you brought it on for a reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Math is. that's would say it's your bag, not mine. But three, three, and one at home, and seven and zero on the road is a much different conversation than one, three, and three at home and seven and zero on the road. So we're we're talking. So all of a sudden, seven games turns into one game—the Philadelphia game, which nobody argues was a good game. Everybody concedes it was a bad game. So fine. So, but we're talking about sample sizes so small that, you know, again, I'm gonna lean on you for the math. <laughs> um, six out of seven or one out of seven, whatever that percentage is, all of a sudden, right, with just a few switches here and there, every, every the entire context of the conversation shifts.
1: It does. It, it absolutely does. A sixteen percent win rate at home isn't That's exactly something that you want. But I, I still look at this and I go, you know, it's something where I would be It's actually less than 16. Uh, (laughs) I, I look at this and I go, yes, context matters a great deal. But I would probably be a little bit more careful about, say, injuries and suspensions and skaters who are not available. I do think there is some insight when it comes to sometimes we look at the regular season as opportunities to say, "Okay, Who can we trust? What are the combinations that we want to try out? How will they handle this particular matchup? Because ultimately, when you get to the Stanley Cup playoffs, it's about beating a particular team in a particular time. It's not necessarily just, okay, well, this team's better than the other. It's do you have enough strengths to knock off this other team in a seven-game series? And sometimes you have to, I don't want to call waste games. I don't like that phrase. But I do like the idea of trying different things out, whether you're forced to or not. And sometimes that information is a little bit more important than just winning the game in the moment. So I almost look at situations like that and go, what information is Tom McClellan and company acquiring? And is this useful enough to where this team will be better equipped to handle home games and the unique benefits and challenges therein? And then everything is starting to come together to where you can make a deep playoff run because you know what your options are, both positive and negative.
0: That's interesting you say that. This is not a statistical thing. This is just a curiosity I had that I wasn't able to ask Todd McClellan. Um, the The Philadelphia game, <clears throat> last year or so, he's Todd McClellan has talked about games that are stinkers. I think that's the word he uses. And he says every team has, you know, whatever, three to six of them. And it, it happens, right? Every sport, every team, every game, you have stinkers. So my question, what I wanted to find a time, the right time to ask him, and I, I just sort of couldn't based on how the media availabilities were going, right. Was was, was, Philadelphia, was the game against Philadelphia a stinker where you just walk away from it and you never look back on it? Or were there enough positives that happened in the game? And were there enough reasons for the negative that you can learn something from it? Mm-hmm. Right? There's some games where you just go, there's nothing to be learned here. We just <laughs> we just got our heads caved in and you never look back. And that's just the end of it. But I so I, I don't know the answer because I wasn't able to ask the question. But I would love to know if the Philadelphia game actually had anything, uh, anything positive in it at all.
1: And I, And again, this is a digressive question. So forgive me here. But how honest do you think he would be
0: about if something is a stinker or not? Pretty, pretty, he's pretty forthcoming in those situations. But with Todd, and I've tried to sort of share this with various people on various platforms. Coaching and player availabilities are a weird ecosystem because you're not in a one-on-one conversation. And it's almost like playing blackjack. You can view it as an individual sport if you want to, but everyone's gonna hate you. You gotta look at it like a team sport. So Todd McClellan's not just talking to you, he's talking to the entire media. And if you're asking him a question that he doesn't want to answer, or, or if you ask him a question that's been asked three times already, or if the mood of the thing is going a certain way, he's less likely to spend more time with you. And then everybody gets less of what they want. So I try and approach it like there's, you know, however many people there are in the room this morning it was particularly crowded. Other people have questions that they want to ask. They've got their stories that they want to write. So you have to sort of pick and choose your moments. And then, because I'm a team employee, I'm not going to just come out, you know, both guns blazing. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with you? Why'd you lose a game? How dare you? That's not my, of that's course. not my place. So I, right. so I, try and find. But if if I think if I had found a moment to ask that question, I think he would have given a proper answer. But I also had other questions that I wanted to ask that I wanted the answer more to. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to transition to into a different topic. One of the questions was, um, Quentin Byfield. This morning, we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, was practicing with the power play unit that has Andre Kopitar and Adrian Kempe on. Um, I called it the top unit. Todd McClellan referred to it as a unit. He didn't want to, <laughs> not, not a unit, B unit, but like he was on a power play unit. I don't know if it uh, a yeah, unit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if I want to call it the top pronouncing unit. Like, long A, short Yes, exactly. Yes. I was like, wow, <laughs> shots fired to that um, unit. But the question I had was, is it helpful to make that decision if you've got. If um, he's got uh, experience playing with those two players, right? Like, so he's not mm-hmm. just moving to a whole new group of players. He's played with Kopitar, he's played with Kempe. But let's talk about Quentin Byfield. Sure. Because I thought he was great last year. So I'm a little bit petty and bitter about all the accolades he's getting this year. But I have to concede not only are the numbers there th- this year, but he does look more confident and he is. Mm-hmm playing differently than he was last year. I just think he was also playing good last year. So what can you tell us? What do the numbers tell us about Quentin Byfield? So when it comes to Byfield,
1: Kopitar and Kempe, I Mm -hmm. believe they're ranking eighth in the NHL and expected goals four per 60 minutes and ninth in Corsi four percentage, all of that good stuff. So certainly he's gelling with with that group, uh, no doubt about it. But also too, when we're breaking his game down, Averaging four additional offensive zone passes, and, and that to me is is really key just because mm-hmm. I think when we talk about Byfield a good bit, it's all about his playmaking, but that he's more of a, dis- not more of a distributor, but that he's more comfortable distributing. I think that's really important as far as making sure that he's, you know, part of a line uh where you have other scorers you're more than comfortable with. Uh Shot attempts have gone up by one and a half, possession time's gone up by a handful of seconds. The playmaking ability is certainly the thing as far as talking about him. But the other thing, too, is, you know, evaluating what he can do and and sort of what he's all about. That part has been, uh, you know, absolutely exciting. You know, you've got someone who is, you know, quite fast, quite agile. uh, All of that's a big deal uh n h l edge stats uh talk about having <laughs> seven we'll get twenty two <laughs> yes, we will I knew we would uh by field uh seven twenty two plus miles per hour bursts uh tied for top eight in the n h l as top speed is twenty three point fifteen miles per hour, just barely missing the top ten among forwards, and certainly we can talk about the value of speed just as a basic skater uh but for someone to have a six foot five inch frame in the offensive zone where you have momentum. And you are really fast and you're looking like an oncoming train. It's something where, okay, by himself, he can be a great playmaker. And I think we've established this for a while now, but that he can also be a distributor for a fantastic line where other folks can finish. I think that is another level of excellence and any kind of combination that could be made there, whether you're trying to go nuts on that first line uh, or you want to sort of stagger. Your potential scorers or assist guys, whatever the case may be, depending upon the matchup, whatever you want to do, at least Byfield uh, can be more
0: of a Swiss army knife now than he could not that long ago. So I want to drill down on the passing issue because before the season started, the number I had in my head was 20 goals, 60 points for mm-hmm. Quentin Byfield. I think he's presently on pace for 11 goals or 12 goals, but 76 points, mm-hmm. which means a lot of assists and not all of Kempe and Kopitar's goals have come five on five, but both of them are tied for team lead in goals at seven each. So if Quentin Byfield is going to finish the season with 76 points and 12 goals, but Adrian Kempe and Andre Kopitar are going to be tied for the team lead in goals at the end of the season, they both have seven through 14 games. And as I said, math is not my strong suit. I'm pretty sure that's a 41 goal pace for both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, if that's going to be the situation, man, I'm fine with that.
1: Absolutely. I, I don't see why you wouldn't be. I mean, All it's right. it's not something where, well, I, I do believe that you want your playmakers to be playmakers, right? But I don't think Byfield is at a point in his career where he has to be the one sort of shouldering the load, especially if he's going to be part of a line. But ultimately, I think, okay, with with those other guys, if they're the ones who are going to be finishing at a much higher rate, I I see nothing wrong with that, especially when you've got guys, you know, especially off the rebound who who have great heads up ability. I think that's also another underrated element as far as a line that can be constructed that way. So I have no problem with that either. I I think as long as the proportion is such and you hate to kind of put it this way, it's not just, okay, it doesn't matter who's scoring along the way it does because some people just have higher abilities than others. But you're also pointing to a couple of more than capable skaters who can finish at high rates. And if they ultimately are, I see nothing but that being a good thing.
0: We're certainly not looking to cement Quentin Byfield into a player model just yet. But is 21 too young to label a guy at anything? I mean, he's 21 and he's on pace for, you know, 60-something assists. Who's Mm -hmm. to say he doesn't develop or, I mean, I guess he already had a great shot. He was drafted second overall. Who's to say That's the right. shot doesn't <laughs> doesn't uh, evolve and catch up with the rest of his game at the NHL level? This is an example where I know we were sort of besmirching
1: the notion of scouting reports and <laughs> well, sports writers coming in. I think at that, I necessarily have a number off the top of my head with like text mining or anything like that. But what I do think, though, is your priors on him, I think, are still good. There is a certain point when you get to a certain age where whatever you thought of that skater coming in, it probably doesn't matter anymore. And there, it would be a lot easier to kind of bring up, you know, say, football examples as far as someone who was drafted lowly and then they went on to win a championship. And certainly, uh, you know, other sports have this as well. But I do think when it comes to, say, a younger skater like Byfield, I look at this and I go, okay, at 21, whatever your priors are in terms of projections, I would hang on to those. I think it's something where, and again, I don't like the hard and fast rule here, but I almost like to give it three years of true NHL play. And I think just because at the professional level, Three years tells us enough as far as what they're capable of, what the trajectory is, all of those things. And so once that happens, then it's probably safe to throw away whatever your priors are at the draft, prior to that, whatever. So I think that matters a great deal when it comes to, okay, whatever he was doing at lower leagues, not that they don't matter. But I wouldn't replace that with what, say, your personal scouting report might be or what the consensus scouting report might be. And sometimes when you aggregate all of those things, that can matter as well. Uh, but for someone at 21 years of age, I'd say, okay, let's give it a little bit more time before we can really make any sweeping conclusions.
0: Let's talk about the edge stats. Um, I don't like them. <laughs> I don't want them. <laughs> I, <What>? wish, <laughs> I wish they went away. Um, And the, the reason why is that the day that I heard That we, we being the NHL industry, Mm -hmm. the day that I heard that we were putting tracking chips in everything, I said, I only want one stat. We still don't have it. And the stat that I want is how much time does each player actually spend in the offensive zone with the puck on their stick? Mm -hmm. That's what I want to know. When Adrian Kempe, Quentin Byfield, and Andre Kopitar are out there, you know, as a line, as a unit, playing in the offensive zone, who's got the puck the most? I don't really see the value in finding out who the fastest is because former LA King Rasmus Kupari, last I checked, was still the fastest. Right. And the the amount of people who could tell you the shortcomings in his game despite his speed uh, are long. And, and the speed was, was never in question, right? Right. right? The, you know, Austin Stanovich, who writes for the Hockey uh, the hockey News, excuse me, sorry, Austin, um, loves to talk about Rasmus Kupari's skating, um, but even he would concede that there are shortcomings to Rasmus Kupari's game, and that being a great skater is not enough. So what is, from your perspective, what is the value of these stats? The hardest shot is another thing. Even at the All-Star game, I don't care about the hardest shot. Mm-hmm. I don't care who's the fastest skater. <laughs> like, I just don't care, personally. It's interesting for... Three seconds, and then I stop thinking about it. It's almost as though our conversations on
1: expected goals <laughs> can be parallel yeah. when it comes to these uh-huh. edge stats. And so perhaps I shall rehash that one, <laughs> sure. and maybe we will uh, come up with a similar answer. But I am a firm believer when it comes to expected goals that the stat itself can offer some real value. In terms of shot quality, if you are, say, fortunate, unfortunate, all of those things. I I do find that there is some usefulness there, but it also does include context. And I think one of the things that I would agree with you when it comes to, say, analytical sports writing or things like that, I would agree with you that sometimes that context can be missing. And especially when it comes to the speed of a skater. That is something where context can be missing. How important is it that someone's top speed of 23.15 miles per hour is different than someone whose speed is 22.65 miles per hour? We're talking about like, you know, half a mile per hour difference or whatever it is. Over the course of time... It's something where you might have some marginal difference that you can pinpoint and go, well, actually, the fact that he can be a little bit faster than, say, this other guy chasing him down, there are situations where you can get a, a higher quality of shot. And that's that's terrific. Also, I would say though, is okay, there is probably a diminishing margin of returns when it comes to, okay, the faster you are. How much does this matter? Because the the fastest ones are not that much faster than say the second tier, if you were to categorize or, or whatever. So it, when it comes to speed, hardest shot, all of those things, I do find them useful, but they do require some context that can be missing. And without that context, and look, part of that is just how it's presented, right? like you go to the edge website and you just see a list of the top 10 fastest skaters or the top 10 hardest shots or whatever it is and that to me is is useful in so far as okay you take that information and then you apply it to any one particular play or something where again you have a large enough sample size and then you can talk about okay this may not seem like a big deal but over time you gain that edge in key matchups, say, off the rush or whatever. And then every now and again, what might be considered a mid-danger shot becomes a high-danger shot. And that's hard for us to notice you know, in one game unless it's clearly obvious. But over the course of a season, when you increase that sample size, then every now and again, something changes. Will it lead to a goal? Hard to say. Sometimes, again, these margins are really, really small, but you'd rather have a slightly faster skater, all other things being equal.
0: So there's two bits of context that are missing from the stat that I think are important. And Todd McClellan raised one of them. He was talking about the speed bursts yeah. and, and, and top-end speed. And he said, listen, if a player turns the puck over in the attacking zone and then lists their fastest speed burst of the year chasing down the opponent who stripped the puck off their stick in order to prevent a scoring chance... Okay, great that he hit that top speed, great that he had that burst, but all could have been avoided had he not been the one to turn the puck over. Um so that is there. Then secondly, you know, Kings fans should be all too familiar with the player who can turn on the afterburners but can't think as fast as he can skate. And a player like Connor McDavid, his superpower is not his speed. His superpower is the processing speed right? The machine moves faster than everybody else, sure, but the computer that drives the machine processes the information fast enough that it can control the machine. Kings fans have seen Craig Johnson, Andreas Athanasiu, Austin Wagner, no offense to those players, lights out top-level speed, could not do the moves that Connor McDavid can do at that speed. And a player like Andre Kopitar, who does not have um, afterburner speed, but whose processing speed is otherworldly, you know, and that, honestly, like that's one of the reasons that I find co- um, Sidney Crosby so uh, compelling to watch is that he is thinking of things that other people have not thought yet to try. What you know, while in the middle of a play. So I can't remember who I had the conversation with, but recently might have been Mark Unetti. I'm just going to pretend it's Mark Unetti. Um, we were we were talking about the difference between skill and smarts, essentially and and the phrase that i sort of landed on that i was very pleased with is you can be smart enough to out- overcome being slow but you can't be fast enough to overcome being stupid so until yeah. we until edge until edge stats comes up with a hockey iq stat <laughs> i guess i'm also you can't just rank all of the players 1 to 25 on a team you have to like hunt and peck one player at a time and compare all their stats it's very, of course
1: but again though i don't like to just throw away information like that and granted our context that we have and i guess our motives that we have can be very different like we are not scouting for the kings right but we are trying to tell stories and i think sometimes first off it's just impressive i guess when when you're reaching those kinds of speeds and doing it on ice, I think that in and of itself is a nice way just to remind us how talented these guys are and how athletic they are. I think that in and of itself is useful. But I think also, too, our eyeballs are going to have a hard time discerning someone who's skating, you know, at an average pace that is one and a half miles per hour faster than someone else. But I think we would all agree that all other things being equal, and by that I mean everyone is Mm -hmm. thinking and processing the same way all other things being equal yeah you want the faster guy and i think it's an added element that can be used to explain a story but you do need to have that context and i would add too that in terms of like edge or whatever i don't know if it's necessarily their responsibility to be telling the stories for us i know they have articles and all that's fine but in terms of dispensing information That's more up to the sports writers and sports broadcasters to be offering that context. And I think sometimes that can be missed, especially in a situation where, again, this is probably too much of a digression, but uh, in this era where we're dealing with short clips and tweets and all of those things, it is much harder to offer some context. It's a lot easier just to navigate a website and offer the top five kings in terms of skating ability. Instead of, okay, this one may be third, but watch what he can do with that speed. And that context matters a great deal.
0: Well, I hate to concede that you're right. But even as you were saying all that, I was thinking about Quentin Byfield. And when he was drafted, one of the reasons was it's rare to find that kind of size combined with that kind of speed. And now we are seeing both on display, and it's impressive. So.
1: And that's something else too, where, yeah. and I haven't done this work yet, but you can power rank like, you know, the top 10 fastest skaters or, you know, fastest top speeds or whatever, and then compare that with their size and just show how much of a unicorn by field is in that regard. And that is context. That is a story, but you have to do a little bit of legwork to get there.
0: That's the, that's the part that rarely gets done for my grumpy old man perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we've talked about Byfield, we've talked about edge stats. If I'm not mistaken, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was Alex Lafarier. Oh yeah, because he is. Um, I thought overhyped at the start, although he earned it, and I think maybe over. Well, I'm I'm t- I'm hesitant to talk about it too much because i don't want to be responsible for introducing a conversation that hasn't yet reached certain people okay. but there are dark corners of the king's internet where question marks are being raised and the question is has alex Laferriere hit some sort of rookie wall or is there any sort of regression in his game because at the beginning of this preseason not even the season um alex Laferriere was the third round pick he was entering his first pro season He came, you know, he turned pro late last year. He started, played a couple games with the Rain, quickly moved to the Rain top line, quickly impressed. Um, Everybody I spoke to internally really liked the kid. But I think it was pretty much understood heading into the season that there just wasn't a lot of room for him, and the Kings were going to start the season with only one extra skater. And if it was going to be a forward, it was likely to be Jared Anderson Dolan. If it was going to be a defenseman, well, then it wasn't going to be Alex LaFerriere. Then Kaliev gets suspended, so there's a two-game window for the preseason, and then uh, Victor Arvidsson gets placed on LTIR. Suddenly, the Kings have room for extra skaters, and there's a spot in the lineup for a right winger. He makes the team. He winds up on a line with Fiala and Dubois. He earns rave reviews from the media, the broadcasters, and the fans. Um, I don't personally think that that line slipped any i mean it's only 14 games but regardless um i d- i wasn't expecting the line to be broken up i didn't think that there was significant slippage but they moved kevin fiala to a different line they replaced him with arthur calia with dubois and Leferrier, and conversations started happening about well is it time to juggle some lines is it time to make some scratches has alex Leferrier slowed down any and from what I have witnessed, I don't nothing really leapt out to me. Um, so I asked you to specifically look into it to see if there was anything statistically that leapt off the screen that might help tell that story. I guess for sure,
1: Sport Logic came to the right place. Okay, and they they uh, are taking care of me here as far as uh, some of the key numbers. First five games for uh, Alex Affairier Kings rankings. Expected goals, 1.47. That's fourth on the Mm -hmm. team. Shot attempts, 29. That's second. 15 shots on net. That's tied for first. Okay. Six slot shots tied for third. And two rebound chances. So that's his first five games. And suffice to say, that's all fantastic. Right. Since then, expected goals uh, now ranks 10th on the team at 2.32. 53 shot attempts, ranks 8th. 28 shots on net ranks tied for sixth. Slot shots, and again, with slot shots, like there's a lot of volatility here because you're dealing with smaller numbers, and so mm-hmm. whatever. But now it's down to 11th, and rebound chances, uh, still tied for second here. So whatever you want to read into that, uh, again, you're dealing with small sample sizes. So the numbers have gone down. I, I think that is safe to say in terms of the advanced metrics. The other element to it is that he only has the eighth highest ice time among forwards. And this goes back to this notion of, okay, how much do we trust Todd McClellan, King's organization, all of those things when playing time is, say, shorter than you would expect it to be despite an outstanding start? And this is sort of the interesting conversation where you go, okay, the playing time has been minimal. That is one of the big reasons why the numbers have gone down. Now, why is the playing time gone down? Because he's a rookie, because he's not playing well, given different line combinations where there may be bigger fish to fry. And that's also part of the conversation. It's not just about, you know, LeFarriere and, you know, making sure that he can be in the best possible situation. Sometimes there is uh, sacrificing involved because ultimately the the offense for the team will be better if say he's in a position that is in a slightly weaker place so that's part of it but ultimately it's about what uh what the expectations are and the fact that okay he may have gotten off to a hot start but there is variance there and certainly there is room for growth and that's with most everyone but the the variance with a small sample size coupled with coaching decision making that says okay we need to scale back what his contributions might be but that's part of embracing your priors right we weren't expecting him to have much if any ice time and then all of a sudden he got a bunch of it and yeah he made the most of it and that's great but we can't let that small sample size at the beginning of the season overwhelm what the ultimate path is supposed to be for him because with young guys it can fall off a cliff And there has to be a kind of, okay, yeah, you're off to a great start. We love you. We're keeping you, all that stuff. But we also want to make sure that you are maturing at the same time. And long term plans are perhaps more important than short term plans of making sure that he maintains his hot start.
0: I'd like to toss out a secondary um, explanation, which is that it might not, excuse me, it might not have anything to do with it um one of the things one of the talking points uh, after the strong road record and everything was that the kings no longer are being as particular about their matchups as they have been in past seasons mm-hmm. because the fourth line is playing so well because the top line is playing so well because they have depth they're just not worrying. they're rolling four lines routinely and so on any given night i was stunned there were i can't remember which game it was but there was one night where the difference between the top line and the fourth line in even-strength minutes played was less than a minute. It really was like all four lines playing 11 minutes, basically, and then special teams' play got sprinkled throughout the game. So if it's a situation like that where everybody's minutes are reduced because every line is contributing, then it doesn't even necessarily reflect on him or what the coaching staff expects of him. It's just a situation where, yeah, he's a 21-year-old Playing on a line with two guys who generally speaking, um, drive play. And also at some point, Kevin Fiala was asked to shoot the puck more mm-hmm. by the coaching staff. That could also explain, um, right. If Fiala, known for his dynamic playmaking is <laughs> opting <laughs> to take more shots himself, well, then that's fewer opportunities for uh, Alex Leferrier. So, um, that's something we'll have to keep our eyes on though, because. Of course. you know the the coaching staff has shown that they're not shy to change things up um even early in a season, so yeah, anything else uh that you had looked at or checked in on that you wanna uh that you feel we need to know about well, when
1: it comes to cam Talbot,
0: yes, oh all right,
1: yes uh he's he's been great mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah nice to say I've yeah been, no so. question <laughs> right uh the end that's all I. yeah all right thanks uh, for joining us ed <laughs> yeah, exactly uh no he has been fascinating as far as like the type of shots he's been facing a great mm-hmm. deal and, and this is actually something i wanted to ask you about because it is interesting that the kings have been facing a lot of long range shots mm-hmm. they're not and part of this may just be strength of schedule and again this goes back to our sample size conversation, but. It is fascinating that he has been facing a lot of longer shots, low danger chances uh, by opposition uh, like he and Sergey Bobrovsky have faced as many long range shots as any goalie can uh, at this point. And I think this happens because in part you think that's the best you're going to get. Like, okay, why are we going to try and manufacture a high danger chance knowing full well that the probability of that is really, really low? We better go ahead and throw it out there. And then maybe we will get a rebound and turn something that's just more depositing than it is, uh, say, actually shooting, trying to score. And then maybe, you know, poking home rebounds is is ultimately the play there. And it's, you know, one team to the next as far as what the uh, motivation might be. So that's that's a part of it. Uh, but in terms of rebounds per save and rebounds over expected, you know, Talbot's been in the middle of the pack. So it's not a big problem, something that definitely we'll be watching for going forward so that, you know, you've got other folks who can sort of you know clear the puck. And that's going to be a really important thing. But even when teams are going after uh, high danger opportunities, Talbot's got a great high danger shooting percentage saved. Uh, he, he's been very, very good at those. He's been very, very good at low danger shots as far as saving those. And I think that combination is such to where we're seeing someone play at a really high level. And it just, again, goes back to why the Kings have been playing so well at that end of the ice. Well,
0: and I think, you know, one of the things I said about this season so far was that we're getting the best version of what we were promised, right? We were promised depth. We were promised four lines. We were promised a solid D core. And so when the team, opted to spend the 32nd um you know the 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 money they're spending on goalies is ranked 32nd out of 32 teams i don't know how to say that shortly um when they when they opted to make that yeah well (laughs) i mean they spent their money other places i'm sure if they were if they were allowed to spend an extra 20 million dollars on goaltending i'm sure they would um but one of the things that we i think those of us who cover the team regularly sort of thought was okay well You have Doughty and Anderson. You have Gavrikov and Roy. You have Deneau and Moore and Kopitar and all these players who are, you know, incredibly adept defensively. I just assumed, okay, we're going to allow the fewest number of high danger chances, and that way, even if the goaltender is lousy at high danger chances, well, there will only be, you know, a few of them. So teams are going to have to bury every single one they get in order to beat us. Um, But I think the reason Talbot is has put up the numbers he's put up is because he's actually performing well, even in the rare high danger chances he faces. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. And again,
1: visually and analytically, there is that marriage there where absolutely that makes perfect sense, where he's not being asked to handle a lot of high danger chances. But when he does, he's performing at a really high level. And that's what you want, right? And you also want to develop that reputation to where it's a bit of a surrender by opposition, right? Where they're not necessarily forcing uh, the hand, so to speak. And they're like, all right, well, maybe this is our best approach. And you're also sort of playing into his strengths as well.
0: I will say this about the NHL edge stats. I do like the distance map on the goaltenders. It shows you where the shots are coming from.
1: Uh, Oh, that. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, So I'm, so I'm looking at Cam Talbot and long range, um, he's made 82 saves, long range. League average is 38. He's right. in the 99th percentile. So to your point, yeah, he's facing way more shots from long range um, than most goalies are. And then mid-range, right. um, 72 saves, league average, 49. He's in the 84th percentile. So, right, more more than not. Um, and oddly enough, I think his worst, I'm just based on eyeballing this um, NHL edge stat page, his worst save percentage is actually from the left face off dot uh mid range, you know, mid range danger, I guess. That's so, a sample size thing for sure. Yeah, so make of that what you will, I guess. Right. Um, all right. Listen, Ed, this has been fantastic and educational as always. Let's get you back in sooner than later. Uh of so course. we can revisit these conversations. Um, host of BetQL Daily. Where do people listen to that? absolutely you can find it on twitch you can find
1: it on youtube you can also go to the odyssey app uh and i think we're on the BedMGM app as well but uh definitely those outlets are where you can find us there and then of course uh clips are always posted on my socials at uh, ed with sports on twitter instagram or x whatever it's called now
0: uh but yeah all right and uh, next time we'll get jim fox in here because i know that he always enjoys and appreciates your contributions today's scheduling was an issue eddie grass thank you so much for joining me My pleasure.